So Lampong. There was a winter retreat at Amravati. It was the, the winter retreat of conviviality. So how serious should we be practicing? Because he remembers this, this winter of conviviality. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the party line is you should be very serious. <laughs> <laughs> so you get this impression that it's all, you have to be really serious and dedicated. <clears throat> and so then conviviality sounds like you're not being serious because you're being friendly and open. But it's very important to reflect on what, when you hear these words, keep silent, don't talk, eat little, sleep little, and get rid of all desires. <clears throat> these are the kind of uh, messages we oftentimes hear in this tradition. And uh, how does that affect you, you know, personally, when you hear that? You know, so the ego, if you have a lot of faith in the tradition and the teacher, and the teacher says, then you, you try to not talk very much, eat very little, sleep very little, practice a lot and then uh, but it's all from the idea of of that Dhamma is very serious and you've got to get something you don't have <clears throat> because we we assume that we're we're flawed human beings <clears throat> we've got all kinds of problems personal problems weaknesses frailties and which you know we tend to See, be critical of, be critical of ourselves, or we we see weaknesses or frailties or things we don't like in other people. So, you know, then the the tradition is, and you know, religious traditions are pretty much, you know, giving you the the these very uh, strong teachings of how to behave and conform and and get rid of desire, but the Buddhist teaching is actually about understanding. It's not about conforming out of fear, out of ego, out of just blind belief in teachings, but it's it's a whole teaching of investigation. So like in at Amaravati at that time, they everybody was trying to be very serious and so, you know, they became very, people just started being afraid to be friendly, being, you know, even criticizing others who weren't that serious as one assumed they should be. And so the idea of conviviality was uh, in winter's retreat, quiet, no talking, silence, and all that are, are good recommendations. But the grasping of those perceptions makes us kind of rigid and stressed out and rude and, and not mindful of each other, where conviviality is a, is a kind of openness. It's not about just going around and talking and, and socializing indefinitely, but it's a way of opening in a community of monks and nuns of opening in a friendly way rather than than trying to be perfect examples of 
a serious practitioner. You know, so, you know, even, you know, religious, religions, all religions are traditions, they're forms that we, we get interested in. Like, I became interested in Buddhism in the, uh, you know, as an intellectual exercise. And so, uh, then the Wat Bapong, the first year Wat Bapong, there was very strict practice, which, uh, you know, I quite enjoyed. I mean, I was having all kinds of, of uh, emotional problems because, because I was the first foreign monk in this, in this monastery. So, you know, you, everybody looks at you, looked, would look at me and, and, uh, became a focus of attention and interest and, and constantly trying to learn another language and fitting into a very, uh, precise tradition of Vinaya rules, precepts, conformity and so forth and so <clears throat> this this at first was taken on the ego level you know that I'm here to get something I don't have I'm unenlightened I'm a confused man I want to get stuff I want to get enlightened I want to attain arahantship I I don't want you know so I could see all kinds of weaknesses, things I didn't like about myself, I could be critical of, <clears throat> which I strongly identified with. But upon investigation, all these weaknesses, all these uh, faults, you know, they created in the, the intellect is a fault-finding uh, habit pattern, you know, so we learn to language which is based on this dualistic structure of right and wrong, good and bad. And, uh, and you're not born with that. You're, you acquire that later in your, your innocent childhood as you learn to speak a, a language. And language is every single one of them is about heaven and hell, God and the devil, right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. And in Dhamma, you know, when we, I was brought up as a Christian, so you, the, you know, the imperative suggestion there was to believe in God, um, which I found, you know, as I grew older, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't have a clue of when I say, when I say the Nicene Creed, I believe in God, you know, I started questioning, I don't know what that means. Where in uh, Buddhism, you're not asked to believe in anything. And so it's a challenge it's to investigate the reality of experience as each one individual form is experiencing it. And then the conformity within this tradition is just action and speech. So the, the aim is to to submit to the, conform to these 227 precepts. And that's the agreement when you ordain as a bhikkhu. Uh, but that's about action and speech. 
That's not about emotions, feelings, perceptions, habit patterns. It's not, you know, there's no mention of, of these. Uh, to, you can't conform to a, to a lot of rules that are imposed on you or that are conventions only. Uh, and so, you know, when we grasp the rules too tightly, we become very, you know, we become very distressed and stressed out because life is not about conforming to rules, but about the the way, the Dhamma, the way things are, about the changingness of conditions, about the non-self, not about me as, what's wrong with me as a person, or mistakes I've made in my life, or how I should be or shouldn't be. It's about Dhamma, which is translated into English as ultimate reality, supreme reality, but those are just words, English words. Uh, but what is the supreme reality? And so this you ask yourself, what, what do we mean by uh, I take refuge in Dhamma? Well, you know, we can say that it's part of a tradition. We can chant it in Pali language. But what is Dhamma? What is it? Uh, you know, that what is the rea- ultimate reality? And then in the morning and evening pujas, we chant Santitiko Dhamma, which is apparent here and now. So what is apparent here and now for each one of us sitting there? Is it, you know, can you find the Dhamma through your eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body? You might believe in a, in a definition of Dhamma as a part of a tradition. But apparent here and now, it isn't about, isn't telling you what it is. And what is apparent is each one of us is experiencing consciousness. This is apparent here now. So if I ask any single one of you, or all of you, whether you're conscious, you don't have to ask somebody else whether you are. You know you are. It's apparent. So that's the learning to take refuge in awareness. We call mindfulness, awareness, conscious, intuitive awareness. These are English expressions of that. And then the Four Noble Truths about investigating, starting with suffering, the feeling of stress or fear or anxiety, worry, jealousy, not to see it in terms of personal analyzing, you know, why do I have so much anger or anything like that, but just when anger arises, it's like this. It arises in consciousness and ceases and consciousness. So with awareness, we begin to see the the presence when conditions for anger are present, they're like this. And as we accept that, the the, the anger for what it is, it ceases. So you, you know, the whole idea is to let go of this, these habitual patterns that we bind ourselves to that blind us to Dhamma, to the way things are. Yes, please. Salampur, this is, this is not a question. It's an expression of deep gratitude. And for um, 
the way you you've taught often using stories of your of your earlier life uh, uh, in particular as a monk but not not only and uh, he's, he's, he's acknowledging you know how you've let go of self you've learned you've developed that the heart that let go and he just yeah really just want to say thank you that you've been a great inspiration to this is his and uh, just the way, you know, like, for instance, the story of you, you know, at Wat Pa Pong in the early years, sweeping out in the heat and, and stories like that. And, and um, also, uh, you know, other, the way you've used those as, as teaching points. And so it just, yeah, he just wanted to express gratitude and deep thanks. So no question. <laughs> but you might have something to say. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we have a thank you, thank you feedback loop. So, so another question. Lumpur, the question this person is asking is, uh, can can dhamma can the dhamma be explained to somebody, or is it something that that must be individually experienced? I try to explain it because language is our conditions that we acquire, you know, so any language of Sanskrit, Pali, Tibetan, Chinese, English, or uh, are artificial conditions that, that are creations of human, uh, human beings. So no matter how good the language might be, Dhamma isn't, has no language. It is, doesn't have any language. It's pure conscious awareness that you are right now you know it's not something you you don't have that you've got to get through through um, obeying all the rules and doing living in the right way or sitting for hours in meditation but it's it's awakening to ultimate reality which is uh, consciousness is like this so it's an incredibly simple, and it's not complicated with words or definitions. And yet, you know, you supreme reality or ultimate reality or well, these are the best one can do in with English to to inspire. You know, words can inspire us, like the teachings of the Buddha are quite inspiring to me. So, um, you know, that's how you start out with, with being inspired by the teaching of the Buddha. But they're still teachings, they're still words, they're limited forms. They arise and cease. You can't find any real stability, any constant reality in anything you think, feel, any concept memories or thoughts or sensory the senses themselves or the objects of the senses they're all in this inexorable changingness that's their very nature so the Buddha was you know there's very simple teachings all conditions are impermanent I mean that's the way things are it's, you know he's saying it right off as best you can in words translated from Pali into English, all conditions are impermanent. So that's the way it is. And so, you know, but but when we identify with the conditions, with the definitions of words, 
we might and you know feel inspired by supreme reality or ultimate reality but what does that really mean what is it here and now apparent here and now what is a supreme reality apparent here and now if it, if it's if it's a dhamma so we have this word dhamma which is a pali word and then we translate pali into english and we try to get the perfect translation of the word dhamma into English and you know the best you can do is reality ultimate reality things like that the, you know the kind of superlatives uh, that you can think and create in English language but that that can be inspiring you feel uplifted or hope or uh, you increase your interest or faith in it but uh, then the the whole aim of the buddha is to investigate ultimate reality find what find out for yourself to realize this yourself not just go and believe in some abstract idea of dhamma or ultimate reality so in my own experience you know just by this investigating uh, experiment because I view my life as a kind of experiment. Uh, I thought this is when I was a graduate student at, in Berkeley. You know, I was taking this seminar uh, on Mahatma Gandhi, and I was very inspired by Gandhi's uh, nonviolent teachings. And the professor, the lecturer for this seminar, was a uh, a woman who had actually worked with Mahatma Gandhi when he was alive in in the 1940s in India, and she was, uh, you know, she was a very inspiring lecturer. I was really inspired. Then Gandhi's uh, autobiography was my experiments with truth, and so you know, I was uh, about. 26 years old at the time and and uh, you know I was the kind of youthful exuberance uh, that I had when I was 18 and 19 wasn't there anymore I was kind of disappointed disillusioned with life and then uh, this was in Berkeley and San Francisco at that time uh, in 1959, 1960, it was all very exciting with drugs and freedom to experiment with life, with with doing you know the idea is being free and and uh, and trying everything out, everything just experiment with life, find a way of just enjoying life, enjoying the sensual life, and it all seemed you know pretty interesting at first. But it wasn't, you know, it, it didn't lead anywhere. It, it just left a kind of, you know, kind of incessant search for more pleasure. And then Gandhi's uh, autobiography, My Experiment with Truth, suddenly I had this idea, I'm going to, maybe I should, I could use my life as an experiment. It sounded, you know, I felt inspired by Gandhi. So then I, you know, what's the reason for becoming a monk? It's an experiment. 
So I, this will be my 56th year as a bhikkhu. <laughs> and, and it's been a great experiment because, you know, there was initial interest in Buddhist teaching. That was acquired through reading about mainly based on Zen Buddhism that was so popular in the Bay Area at that time, that period of history. But, uh, you know, how, many, how can you stay inspired even with Zen Buddhism or Buddhist suttas? You know, after a while you, you, you can't sustain inspiration. Uh, but they can set you going in, in, a, in a direction. And that's where the meditation bhavana or practice is, is, uh, is the encouragement. It's putting into practice, finding out for yourself. So uh, then I was fortunate enough to meet uh, somebody like Lung Po Cha. Ajahn Chah in 1967 and um, he was a really, you know, he was really uh, at his peak and kind of being able to inspire people and he was giving, you know, five hour long Dasanas talks on uh, reflections on Buddhist teachings and, and it was all quite practical it wasn't just quoting scriptures and theorizing about things, but it was into actual investigating, using the Four Noble Truths, the, the different sutta teachings to, to help you, uh, encourage you towards investigation, not for belief. So then as, as, uh, you know, I became quite inspired with Lung Ho Cha. So they, you know, that helped, that was helpful at first. But then Lung Ho Cha was in permanent condition. You know, so even within the structure of a tradition, you know, things change. So this morning somebody asked me about the future of Theravada Buddhism or change of you know, because it's very different. Uh, you know, the conditions we find ourselves in here at Chitters, nothing like what I experienced in Wat Pa Pong in 1967. And then the ideal, should we go back to living like that in 1967? Or, you know, the, you realize it's not, it, it's not about setting up conditions, you know, through memory or through ideals, but using the way life is, the way it flows. So now we have, you know, to deal with, uh, you know, in a country like the UK, with a non-Buddhist country, but there's a tremendous interest in mindfulness and awareness that that has fairly recently uh, happened. When, when I first came to live in England in 1977, there wasn't that much interest in meditation amongst British people, you know, so, and now, you know, on YouTube and internet and all those kinds of uh, meditation uh, 
videos and all kinds of teachers and swamis and and bhikkhus and lay meditation teachers. This is fairly recent, and it's a good sign. I, you know, I see it as you know, it's a kind of a good sign because where else can we go in a country like this? Do we want more? Affluence, better, more kind of fascinating, magical uh, machinery, uh, technology. You know, how advanced are we going to get with technology? And no matter where you take it, you know, how and whatever you imagine it can take you with robots and all that, you still end up with the same suffering of being stressed out because, you know, modern life is stressful. It doesn't, you know, technology isn't the answer. It's the what we call awakening to the way things are. And that's exactly what the Buddha proclaimed 2,500 years ago in India. So it's not like an ancient, like a modern New Age discovery. It's suddenly, you know, there's an interest in in Buddha Dhamma that didn't exist back in when I was a student in in 1959. So, um, you know, the experiment has been something I really appreciate. And now, at my age, I feel so much gratitude uh, because this towards the Buddha, you know, just the idea of the historical Buddha and his teaching. And when I think of that, I feel, you know, this is a, a great gift to humanity. And then, then my own, the teachers I've had, Lumpur Cha in this tradition and the opportunities I've had to practice in Thailand, you know, and where I was, you know, people were very encouraging me to practice, and so you know, had very good experience in Thailand and here in in the UK. But it's a, this is a important to to realize that it's not a belief that we're imposing upon you. We're not trying to to convert you to Buddhism or anything like that. Even though it might sometimes seem like that, different monks, different teachers can have very strong views about right and wrong and what the Buddha really taught and what's the real Dhamma and all that. But but that's not the point. It's not about the righteous Dhamma and that the, the pure teaching of the Buddha. That Those are more ideas in individual minds, but apparent here and now is 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 realizing consciousness is as simple as this. It's it's what we are. We're not what we think we are. None of us are what we believe or think or feel and emotions. These are conditions that change according to other conditions. And as long as our identity is with this, with these conditions that we have very little control over, you know, then we feel stressed. And now the conditions are more refined in modern societies like here in the UK. 
where you know you've got the comforts, the luxuries of modern technology, and uh, and there's still you know a determination to get refine them, make them better, and uh, you know this total belief and faith in science. And uh, that science is going to solve all the human problems, but science is still words, thoughts, creations, conditions changing as it has generally manifests at this time. Where Dhamma is is the ultimate science because it's it's knowledge that is direct and provable, realizable. So the realization is. You know, it's realization means reality itself is as simple as this consciousness, and the forms we're in consciousness, like we're all in all of conscious forms, and then generally we're we're told that consciousness is inside the body. So we we start thinking that the body has a, is the foremost, and then consciousness enters the body. But consciousness doesn't have any form. It's immeasurable. And it's here and now. So, you know, you begin to realize that we're all in the same consciousness, in Dhamma. You know, it's not my consciousness, or my consciousness is more advanced than yours. That's just more sense of ego, of... Believing that that I ha- have more conscious awareness than you do, that's uh, you know that's how we might think or believe, but that's not the way things are. So you realize you begin to realize what what consciousness. If there's no consciousness, there's no way to realize anything. You know, where would where would space, where would forms manifest? You know, if there was nothing conscious, would can can I as a as a person, as an individual person with consciousness in, inside me, I'm very limited as a as a form, and uh, you know, as an old man, the limitations are even more. Aware, you know, you're aware of the increasing limitation of old age, and this in this identifying with an old body. Is this what I am? Just an old monk, an old man? You know. So if if I hadn't meditated and investigated Dhamma, you know, at my age I'd still be, I'd be thinking the same stupid thought that I'm an old person and. Uh, you know, I'm not, I can't do things like I used to. I have to sit in chairs. I can't, it's hard for me to kneel down and bow and things like that. My vision isn't very good. My hearing isn't very good. And so if if I was identified with the form as my sole identity, it would be depressing. You know, because it's not what you want. And your ego... You know, it's formed when you're young. So you, you know, 
when you're when you're a child, when you're a teenager, you, your ego is formed, a sense of self-importance or whether you're a good person, a bad person, your strong identities with with culture, with views and opinions, with religious identities. They're all acquired, usually when we're young. And then the body grows old. But consciousness doesn't grow old. You know, and awareness, I don't feel, I, I don't, it's not old. Awareness isn't 87 years old. The body is. And but you realize you're, what your refuge is in awareness, mindfulness, rather than in an aging form. So that's that's one of the perks of growing old is that you suddenly, you know, you realize you feel more at ease with the way things are. You feel at home in just being conscious rather than always trying to look for distractions or something to do or and you know as you retire when i retired as uh, uh from the being the head monk at amravati you know the whole you know i spent years being abbot being head monk being a preceptor so there were all these strong uh images of, you know, that were identities on a conventional level. And it was interesting, I'm retiring, I went to live in Thailand, where I, you know, I was, uh, stayed in a very nice place, and they built a beautiful kuti for me, I didn't have any responsibilities, and uh, people in Thailand, they really respect old monks, so I was treated extremely well. But also, you know, you felt this sense of the, the, just the, the momentum of having spent so many years being head monk, being somebody, leading the group, being the focus. That, those kind of memories were still apparent in a situation that that wasn't you know what it was just through memory and as you're aware of that you begin to you know you're no longer it gives you a chance to reflect on the conditioning of just uh, you know being a, a buddhist monk for so many years and the position you have and and what your your sense of duty responsibility that come with with these leadership positions are can be very strong. And what is aware of that? What is what is aware of? I'm responsible. I have to be responsible, and I should. And then you have all this conditioning of you know trying to live up to being a a, a role model for the sangha, and. Uh, good example of a Buddhist monk and, and you know, very nice ideals. But suddenly, you know, you feel, you know, just attaching to these roles, just the word responsibility and duty become a force, a source of stress. So, you know, even in, in Thailand, I could, I could create stress just by thinking about having to be responsible and having duties and 
and then seeing that I, you know, that that wasn't particularly what demanded, but still the momentum of memory was there, and the refuge was in awareness, not in the, you know, trying to to uh, destroy these memories or to create a, you know, a new sense of, I don't have to do this anymore, I've got to form a new identity. The, the, the ultimate identity is the awareness is, is pure and it's free and it doesn't have a language and it's here and now. And so it's, it's freedom liberation rather than just uh, you know resigning yourself to old age in some kind of good or bad way I can go on and on but I (laughs) I've been warned that I tend to give long answers to short questions there's a question here is the sense of a separate self that arises moment by moment conditioned by the belief that it is free from causes with an independent free will? Well, it's how it's formed, like the ego is formed after, you know, like a newborn baby doesn't have an ego. It's formed through conditioning with language. You are a boy, you are a girl, you know, so you identify with the gender of the body and you are English or you're a good boy, a bad boy, or a good girl, a bad girl, uh, you're middle class, working class, upper class, you're identified with race, the color of the skin, you know, and then there's so many identities now gender identities, you know, just like uh, LGBTQ identities. They're, they're conditioned identities that people grasp. And, and so they're limited by the grasping of those identities. There's nothing wrong with the identities, but it, it's the grasping of conditions that blind us to what, what one really is. So it's, you know, it's, this investigation is liberation because it's, there's no language and it's not a thought, it's not a memory, but it's here and now. So I find, you know, that, that I can just be here and now. Santidiko Akaliko Dhamma, apparent here and now, timeless. Try to imagine timelessness try to you know make images try to imagine what santidiko dhamma is or a timeless santidiko akaliko dhamma you know you you can have the word timeless but what is timeless you know what is the reality of timelessness if they're taking refuge in Dhamma, apparent here and now and timeless, what are we doing? You know, we chanting it in Pali and translating it into English is, you know, all that one can do. But this investigation, Dhamma Vichayo, 
is a, a factor of enlightenment. It's so it's it's encouraging to investigate. So apparent here and now, as I was saying, conscious awareness is a consciousness. And as you abide in pure awareness, it's timeless. The sense of time falls away because time is about thinking, about forms. All these forms are time-bound conditions. They arise and cease. Every thought, every memory, right or wrong, good or bad, crazy or sane, you know, are just forms that, you know, the Buddha compared to, to uh, foam on the sea or soap bubbles or things like that. that. There's no soul or real essence or uh, anything that, you no know, heart to it. It's just phenomena that that out of habit arises and ceases. So we're living on a planet in space. You know, so when you consider, you know, the universe is in terms of the perception of the form. When I look at the, the night sky and see the moon or the, look at the sun in the daytime, you know, where there, there are forms in space. So space, where does it end? Where does it begin? You know, can you find a beginning for space? And if space, if there was no space, there would be no room for forms. So, how, you know, these forms are very dependent on space. And then space and forms depend on consciousness. Because if there's no consciousness, how would there be any way to reflect on space and form? How there be no language, there be nothing. You know, if there were no, if consciousness was just a kind of personal attribute, you know, limited by the form of the individual person, So then, you know, so much of meditation techniques are about about uh, reflecting on impermanence. But, uh, you know, what I found really uh, interesting for me was, you know, I could easily comprehend impermanence as just through the senses through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. It didn't take that long to to have insight into impermanence. But anatta, non-self, you know, what is, what is that? Because who is it that's aware of earth, fire, water, and air? Who is it, you know, what is it that is aware you know, consciously aware at this very moment, this timeless, eternal moment here and now, this awareness is not about the past or the future. It's about sitting here in the sala talking to you. It's like this.
Now, when I say this, it's a way of reflecting, using words the way it is, which isn't describing anything. You know, how is it for you at this time? As uh, uh, you know, what are you experiencing when you hear me talking like this? And then you're you're looking inward. You're suddenly aware of of how words can inspire or confuse. Maybe what I'm saying is very confusing. Maybe it's very inspiring. But, you know, you're the one that is aware of how what I'm saying affects you at this very moment, here and now. And it's learning to trust that awareness, not asking you to believe what I'm saying or to argue with me about it, about the words I'm using, but to use the present moment to just reflect, it's like this. So, you know, one of the sages of Thailand, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu, who was a very inspiring monk who passed away many years ago, he was he's always talking about uh, the way it is. It's like this. And... Uh, and he used different, like a damyata and, and different ways of, of kind of encouraging Thai people to, to, uh, to open to awareness the way it is, it's like this. And then just suddenly you're, you're not trying to figure out the way it is. At this moment, can you describe exactly with words, English words, the way it is? But you know it, it can only be this way. And if I tell you which way it is, then don't believe me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's up to you. It's not about believing, but it's, it's up to you to just open to the present moment. Awareness is as simple as conscious awareness. is not something you lack. It's not something you've got to get or perfect through practice. It's through trust in awareness and that's uh, the, my, what I might refer to as my basic teaching at this time so it's you know you suddenly like the way it is can sound meaningless at first what does that mean you know what way is it right now and then you start thinking and thinking you've got to find out through through dis, discerning with thoughts the way it is, the way you particularly feel at this moment, whether you're inspired or confused, or you're believing, or you're, you don't believe, or you think it's rubbish, or whatever, it's like this. Believing this is very inspiring is like this. Believing it's rubbish is like this. But if you just let go, and believing is 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 a condition that arises and ceases. So what you're left left with when you let go of everything is pure conscious awareness, which has no quality other than knowing the present is like this. So. All conditions are impermanent is, uh, is uh, 
encouragement to to investigate conditions. What is it that can investigate conditions? You know, can one condition investigate another condition? You know, and and is it you know conditions are empty phenomena? You know, their habits. You're not born can with with a conditioned sense of self or cultural identity or anything like that. But consciousness is apparent here and now. And what is it that can investigate? Not analyze. In like this uh, Dhammavicha isn't about analyzing, thinking, but observing, witnessing. It's like this. And as you begin to just keep reminding yourself of this, because we do get carried away with our habits. You know, being a senior monk for so long is a habit of being an important person in a, in a central to a group is a habit, you know, that you acquire these habits through experiencing them. Whether you cling to them or not is something else, you know. So the conventions are there, you know, can be skillfully used or misused. So, you know, in thinking of myself as an old man, uh, a retired monk, uh, or whatever words I might identify with, that's, that's a kind of bondage. Because that's, that's, you know, that's just not the way it is. At this moment, consciousness is, is pure peaceful and as you begin to recognize realize this for yourself you trust it so the path what they call the path becomes very clear not through intellectualizing or or grasping any concepts but through letting go of seeing the the suffering that you create through this grasping, this force of habit, this conditioning that that we acquire after we're born. Did I manage to answer the question? <laughs> I'd have to ask the person who asked it. <laughs> Regardless, it was a great answer. <laughs> Any question from the monastic community? Can you reflect on the factors that would keep you in robes, keep you in the monastic life for a long time? Any any uh, uh, advice or reflections around that? I just can't conceive of a better way to live if you're going to live a life as a human form. I mean, I just feel it's available and... Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I, I like the lie. I like the being a Buddhist monk. You know, you realize it's uh, the whole point is to to use this form to awaken to the way things are. Where you know, and so the whole emphasis, you know, the 
the traditional forms, the Buddha rupas, the the robes, the shaven head, and all this are just constant reminders that that what what you are is it's a convention to use for awareness. The whole emphasis is on practice, on awakening, on investigation. So whatever your position is, whether you're a Samanera, Anagarika, Siladhara, uh, senior monk, junior monk, whatever, these are not the identities we're encouraging, but they're conventions to, to encourage investigation of Dhamma. And then we might, the question can arise, can a layman, uh, do they have a good chance for enlightenment and uh, equal to monks or nuns or anything like that? And these are words that we create. I don't know. You know, I've spent most of my life as a monk. So a layman have to tell me. <laughs> but I've used this particular form and, uh, you know, I feel it's very skillful form. It's old-fashioned, yes. So, you know, you, you can see in the Vinaya a lot of the, you know, rules apply to things that make no sense in modern societies like here in the UK. You know, traditions are made up from the from past perceptions and that, so the, that uh, they are have their limitations. So it's not the tradition that we cling to, but uh, use the tradition as best we can within the situation we're in for awakening. So like today, the opportunity to just awaken to life. And uh, whether you're a lay person or a samana is not the issue. You know, over the years, like in uh, Wat Pananachat, I think it was 40 years ago or so, what, how, what is the established Wat Pananachat? What? 73, wasn't it? Yeah. And so, you know, Ajahn Kavali has built this beautiful Uposita Hall and Wat Pananachat. And in December of this year, he's having an official opening ceremony of this very, very beautiful temple. And he wants me to attend. So, if it's possible, I'll attend, I'll go to Thailand for this ceremony. Then, you know, you think of Lumpa Cha sending me off to this forest, this charnel ground near the village of Bung Wai in northeast Thailand 40 years ago. You know, it's just a graveyard for the village. It was supposed to be haunted by ghosts. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, didn't have any facilities, no well, nothing, just trees, old trees, uh, 
and it was you know about half a mile from the village and so now Wat Pananachat is world famous monastery and so but I remember when the idea of establishing this monastery occurred I didn't want to have anything to do with it you know I only had eight years as a bhikkhu and uh, one of the monks Ajahn Bapakaro he told me that Lumpa Cha was talking about establishing a branch monastery for Westerners because there were more and more Western people coming to Ubon and then there was a lot of problems about translating and and the clash of different cultures Westerners, Europeans, Americans would didn't know how to perform the right motions and movements and and Thai monks can be very conservative and and get very offended by Western habits and so they you know Lung Po Cha's idea is to establish a, a, tra- a monastery for training Westerners and um, and who was the most senior Westerner was myself and I remember when Babakro sort of mentioned it to me I said I want nothing to do with it and then uh, Pabakro said, you're really selfish, Sumato. <laughs> so I started looking at that, you know, because I, I did feel, you know, I, I had ideas I wasn't ready for that position or I didn't want to be bothered. I quite liked uh, solitude. I didn't want to have to explain endlessly Thai customs and Vinaya to people. And... Uh, try to justify the way things are in, in Northeast Thailand to Westerners because the Westerners always have doubts or criticisms to make and, and you endlessly you know, find yourself trying to justify everything and I found the position you know, I, I didn't like being put in such a position and I was selfish so when Lung Po Chai asked me to establish his monastery, I, I decided I would. And so now, 40 years later, it's... Yeah, 50, Uncle. 50? 49. 49 years, then you're 50 next year. <laughs> and, and so, and now it's very, you know, it's very basic. I look at pictures, photographs of... The early days of Wat Nana Chat, you know, it's very, there's, you know, me sitting in, under a grass roof sala, there's nothing like this. <laughs> and and uh, villagers had to dig a well. And the food, the village was very poor, so you got all kinds of things you didn't find very appetizing. And yet, somehow, the power of witnessing the way it is was was still, you know, I had that insight already after eight pansas. So I could actually use my, you know, my feelings 
being aware of them and not believing in them anymore. Rather than uh, trying to just suppress my feelings and, and trying to be a good sport and carry on the tradition, I actually had the insight at that time to, to be aware of them, you know, whether I was comfortable or, or not, or, you know, it was frustrating uh, to, be, uh, to be considered a teacher when I didn't consider myself a teacher, and uh, and I didn't have any real disciples. You know, the monks that came with me were disciples of Ajahn Chah. So, you know, they weren't there because they had faith in me. So there was a lot of criticism of me personally. But then in terms of awareness, you know, I, could, I, I learned to, to reflect on that this feeling of insecurity, anxiety, uh, my own personal preferences. I liked some monks better than others. Others I couldn't stand. And <laughs> the personalities like that. It's all about liking or disliking or approving or disapproving. But that which is aware of the personality isn't about approving or disapproving. It's is aware that these kind of emotions arise according to conditions that you don't choose. You don't choose the way you feel. You just feel this way right now. You know, you haven't made a particular choice to feel a certain way. Try to do that. Try to make yourself happy all the time. You know, and and be have metta for all sentient beings all the time, you know, as a person. Can you actually do that? You know, so when you're living in with other people in community, that oftentimes, you know, is is diff, causing difficulties or crises, problems to you. So what what do you do? You you look, you know. Try to create a perfect monastic community. You can't do it. It's impossible. A perfect monastic community is just an idea in the head. But communities are made up of of individuals who have different karmic problems. You know, they didn't choose to be the way they are. It's not like they they had much of a choice but they they happen to feel this way be this way we and so we use the word karma it's their karma so this cause and effect is about karma about earth fire water air and space it's karmic so it has a you know you can train yourself to feel positive like think only good thoughts spread metta to the universe uh, and that can make you feel happy and uh, it's inspiring but you can't sustain that you know it's, a, it's just through thinking through words you know you can get high on pos- power of positive thinking 
you can get very high on it, but you can't sustain the high. Where awareness, you don't have to sustain, even in the midst of a storm or COVID epidemic, uh, COVID <laughs> pandemic, or difficult so marital problems or social problems or sangha problems. The, the awareness is what you depend on and trust, where your own personal reactions are the way they are. So you you know you begin in this sense of trust isn't a, it isn't about belief in things or trying to be perfect and trying to live up to high standards and and uh, trying to become enlightened through you know practicing meditation it's it's seen that all conditions are impermanent and not self Sapetama anatta. Dhamma is not personal, not self. And it's apparent here and now. You know, so it's the word Dhamma is quite a useful word in the English language. Because it's you know, like in term like Christianity, they personify Dhamma as God. You know, so there's so many problems around belief in God or atheism not I don't believe in God or I believe in God but what what is God you know what can God be here and now is it some kind of metaphysical word that you you imagine some power in the universe a patriarchal figure up in the sky or or you know you can you can imagine God, but can you imagine Dhamma? You know, you can't imagine it. Except you can use words like supreme reality. But you can't imagine Dhamma because it's here and now, and it's conscious awareness. It's like trying to look, see your own eyes, you can't do it. You know, say, you know, try to for your eyes to be able to see themselves. They 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 aren't equipped to see themselves. They see objects. So consciousness is aware of objects, whether it's emotions, thoughts, memories, sensory the senses themselves, or sensory objects, or objects that arise and cease in consciousness. So you can't imagine Dhamma. Is it patriarchal? Is it male or female? Is it neuter? Is, is God neither sex? Or is sexless? Or is God just an illusion? Or isn't it? There isn't any God, you know. So, but, but all of these positions are beliefs that you might prefer one belief over another. So beliefs are acquired perceptions. They're not. They're not uh, natural. They're not dumber. They're not the way things are. 
So where trusting and awareness is asking you to do something very practical. You know, something that doesn't depend on belief, but on a willingness to witness experience as you, as you personally experience it. And that Dhamma is not self. There's no, there's no personality in it. It's not Ajahn Sumedho or anyone else. It's not a, you know, awareness doesn't have a language, doesn't have an image. But it's what we are, really, our true identity. And it's impersonal, it's anatta, not, there's not a personal self involved in it whatsoever. To make a person, I have to start thinking I'm Ajahn Sumedho. And on the conventional level, you know, I am. So when Ajahn Hingsako invited me, Ajahn Sumedho, would you visit Chitters? I, I said, there's no Ajahn Sumedho. So <laughs> I can operate on the conventional level, you know, uh, you know, it's... It's not to that you don't you 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 just annihilate conventions, but you no longer cling to conventions. Your identity is not dependent on conventional conditioning. So when we talk about the deathless, like one of the. Pali quotes that I quite like giving before I give a formal talk is the gate to the deathless is open so this is in the scriptures the Buddha after his enlightenment said the gate to the deathless is open aparuta desanga matasatavara the gate to the deathless what is, what is a deathless? what doesn't die? what isn't born? and doesn't die, is open. So what is the gate? It's a door, it's an entrance to realization, realizing the deathless. Well, what what is that? Ye soda one tab satang, the trust in this. Those who listen, who are listening, soda wantas are listening, listeners, Release this faith and trust, trust in this. So what is it? You know, what is what is the gate to the deathless? And of course, through investigation, it's the awareness. Conscious awareness here and now. So it's, you know, it's, it's up to... Like, how to use this form for that? Just clinging to the form is not, you know, isn't it? The form is limited, imperfect, and uh, the way it is. So like, uh, Theravada Buddhism is like this, but it is a convention. But then the Buddha's conventions are not ends in themselves, you know, so it's about uh, trusting in the conventional forms 
for investigating reality as we experience it. So like even how you have all these monks living in one monastery, but each one is, you know, in, in outward appearance, we're conforming, you know, to, to action and speech. But what, you know, but what we're actually experiencing through consciousness can be very different. You know, so people have doubts, worries, faith, trust, belief. They, they you know, they, the, the critical mind is endless things you can find fault with in this tradition. And, uh, you know, you can imagine a perfect Buddhist tradition, maybe create a, a new religion, a new form or modern form, you know, they're all ideas, you know, that, that are, you know, fair enough, who's say that this form is the only form that's right. But from my experience, this is the form I've used. And uh, and that's why I respect it, because it it, 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 it does work. It's very, very direct and very clear. And so you feel, you know, after all these years, that, you know, I can't, you know, I've even, I used to years ago try to imagine what it would be like if I could get everything, if I had a lot of money and, uh, I could do anything I wanted and uh, had a lot of, you know, imagine the very best of the sensual world uh, as a possibility, you know. Uh, do I have to spend the rest of my life in the, within this form? And, and uh, so I used to try to imagine other possibilities. But no matter how fantastic my imagination might be, I, I never felt that it was what I really wanted, that this experiment, using this lifetime, with this body, this personality, this being, individual being, as an experiment with the Four Noble Truths. So I'm not a scholar, and uh, I've not been interested in in Buddhist scholarships. But I do have, you know, this incredible appreciation and encouragement for you all. The gate to the deathless is open, and what is deathless? You know, what what doesn't die? You know, if any, everything born must die. So that's the karmic conditions of earth, fire, water, and air, the forms that arise in space that is apparent in consciousness. So does consciousness arise and cease, you know, and according to the forms? Or are the forms in consciousness? And then my insight is the forms are in consciousness. 
which include all of us, the sun and moon, the stars, the universe, you have this sense of perfection, of wholeness, completeness in this oneness, rather than the, the fear and problems I would create just identifying with the forms, the body, this body, these senses, my position in life, what will happen to me when I die, my legacy, you know, you can concern yourself with your legacy, with your, you know, writing books and, and uh, you know, becoming famous. Do I want to, to, to become famous as a person? You know, so then, you know, I want to be respected as a teacher. I've devoted my life to the Sangha and I expect people to be grateful. All these are creations through language. There's Sakyaditi or the ego. We create, we can make monastic life a source of great suffering. Living within the Vinaya structure and in a, this ancient tradition we can make it a lot of suffering for ourselves through through what? Through because of the forms or the tradition or the conventions or because of the clinging to them. The way we we tend to cling and attach or criticize or find fault. You know, so living you know, in the Sangha with other people is always we're gonna find fault. In marriage or in relationships and family life, there's always, you know, the critical mind is always seeing something you don't like about your partner, about the, the political system, about the, you know, the society, your position in the society, and and there's always something to to criticize because that's that's the function of language and memory. It's all based on right and wrong, good and bad. But if there's no language, is there any right and wrong, or good or bad? You know, is there, are these realities other than illusions we create through thinking, through imagery, through attachment to perceptions? So, you know, you think of a, of fairness and justice. Uh, being American, you know, you're, you're brought up in a society in my generation where, you know, there's equality and freedom and democracy. Everybody's equal. And, uh, you know, when I was born during the 30s in the Depression in the United States, when things were not equal in any way. And, and yet the, the cultural illusions of an American of my generation was freedom and equality, democracy. Democracy was the be-all and end-all, the perfect form. So, uh, you know, you, you're conditioned to believe in these ideals. But then as you grow more observant, you realize it's, 
what's equal about anything, about the world? What's fair about it? Where is justice? Where is righteousness? You know, so you, you know, and then the, the mass media, the media this time is very much reporting all the things wrong with, in every part of Africa, South America, Asia, Europe, America. You know, there's so many things wrong. And now there's a war in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, we get endless news about Russian invasion of Ukraine and that's not fair, that's not right and you know it's, it's, these are the problems of forms, conditions, views and opinions, political views, conservative or liberal and we tend to grasp these views so much we're willing to die for them, die for illusions but you know as persons you know I hear, you know, Western people are going to Ukraine to volunteer to fight for the Ukrainians, which is kind of noble intention. But why would you want to fight? What are you fighting for, you know? For ideals, for justice, for freedom, for democracy. And, and then you think, what is democracy? What does that mean in, in reality? And America is supposed to be the perfect example of democracy, but it's not. You know, it's a belief. So, so, and that's the way things are. It's not like criticizing America, but just not expecting life to live up to, to ideals that we create in our mind not demanding the world be something it can't be because that just leads to disillusionment and despair. Because at this time the conditions are like the war in Ukraine and famine and climate change and the conditions for that are, uh, you know, present and concerning. And who's to blame for it? So then we we want to blame consumers in China or America, you know, and the overpopulation of the planet or the political systems of uh, authoritarian leaders or democratic leaders, you know, the whole world creates endless uh, scenarios of unfairness and injustice that we hear about all the time. So what to do? Are we going to, is there any way out of this realm that we're, we're experiencing? You know, not to, it's not like turning your back on the world, but understanding the world is a result of karma, cause and effect. Just like birth and death, you know, you can't, if something isn't born, it never dies. And then on a experiential level, what doesn't die? When you've let go of everything, let go of desire, let go of self-view, let go of the ego, 
have you gotten rid of the world? You know, you're still a f human form operating in a society it's like this, but you're no longer you no longer see it in terms of right and wrong, good or bad, and clinging to views and opinions. You learn to adapt and trust in Dhamma is the best way to explain it. And then uh, the form that we use, you know, it has survived 2,500 years. So it's, uh, you know, a viable form to, and still works in modern countries like Britain. You know, it's working very well. It's, you know, the development of Chithurst and Amaravati and the different branch monasteries quite surprised me how this particular tradition has flourished in uh, in Europe and in America. So, you know, it's it's a useful form, something that I, you know, I learned how to use and what I encourage other people who are interested to use. Lumpur, you've offered us so much to reflect on today. And so I think uh, this is a good, good time and good opportunity for us to, uh, in the traditional way, to express our appreciation. So... Andamayang damakataya sadukarang dadamase sadu sadu sadu.